This is Eyewitness News up close with Bill Witter. You had people that would compete or argue with you on who was being more inclusive and right. You now have a climate where Donald Trump and them are saying, yes, we are ending inclusion. This morning, Bill Ritter talks to the Reverend Al Sharpton, who could be called the nation's senior civil rights advocate. A candid conversation about the state of race relations in America and how he has changed his approach over the years. The battle for the U.S. Senate seat in New Jersey currently held by federally indicted Bob Menendez. First Lady Tammy Murphy has tossed her hat into the ring. So has Congressman Andy Kim, who's been raising money while battling leading Democrats in New Jersey who have thrown their support behind Murphy. But first, Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman and his controversial executive order banning transgender athletes from competing in women's sports at county-run facilities. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Up Close. I'm Sandra Bookman sitting in today for Bill Ritter. Governor Hochul is pushing back against that new ban in Nassau County on transgender athletes and girls sports. County Executive Bruce Blakeman signed an executive order Thursday, immediately putting the ban in place. It applies to all county-run sports facilities. Biological males, whether they identify themselves as transgender or not, have sports outlets here in Nassau County where they can compete and we encourage them to compete. Nassau County is a walking example of why we need a constitutional amendment in New York State to protect all sorts of people's rights. I'm profoundly disappointed in Nassau County Executive for announcing this illegal discriminatory executive order that only harms one group of people and that's our transgender youth. You know, there's absolutely no reason for this announcement or this ban um, other than to be a political stunt. Now, the governor has hinted at possibly taking legal action. State Attorney General Letitia James also weighing in, saying she is reviewing legal options. You heard County Executive Bruce Blakeman there making the announcement that has created a somewhat of a firestorm. He is joining us this morning. Thank you so much for sitting down with us, Mr. Blakeman. Thank you. So why this executive order now? Well, first of all, uh, we are getting into the point of our season where this summer it's the most active period of time in our parks and other sports facilities. And this is the time that we send out to various leagues and teams their uh, use agreements and their licenses to participate in sports at our facilities. So uh, we are including in those agreements uh, a clause that says that if a team or league identifies themselves as being an all girls or all women's team or league, uh, that they cannot have biological males competing because that would be fraudulent, it would not be transparent, and uh, we believe that Biological males have an advantage over females. They're bigger, faster, and stronger. And we want to protect uh, women's rights to participate in sports on a fair and uh, even playing field. So um, there shouldn't be a controversy about this because this isn't anti-transgender. Transgender athletes have an opportunity to compete in all male leagues, and they have an opportunity to compete in co-ed leagues. Uh, this just applies to leagues that identify themselves as all female or all girls. 
So just out of curiosity, do you have any numbers on how many transgender athletes this will affect in your county? How, how much of an issue it is in Nassau County? Well, it is an, an issue all over the United States. It's throughout the United States. I mean, uh, that's the uh, main topic of uh, controversy right now this past week. And this is something that we've been contemplating doing for the last two months. Uh, so uh, this shouldn't be anything new to anybody. The reason why we are doing it now, as I said, is because we are putting in place our, our agreements to operate uh, at our facilities with leagues and teams, as we do every year. Uh, but we want to make sure that we protect the women. Look, it's a common sense issue. It's a safety issue. And it's a fairness issue. And women have been fighting for decades for fairness in sports. And we are getting close to achieving that. And now uh, with biological males injecting themselves into these all girl and all female teams and leagues, uh, to me is bullying. And it's a safety issue. It's a common sense issue. And it's a fairness issue. And we're sticking up for the women and the girls who compete here in Nassau County. Did, did some of your constituents, you know, raise this issue of concern with you, come to, come to your office and say, you know, we really need you to take a look at this because we feel like we need uh, some guidance and some protection here? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We've heard from a number of parents. We've heard from competitors, uh, women athletes themselves. We've heard from girls. Uh, uh, just today, I got a uh, an extended email from a 16-year-old girl who said, thank God you're doing this because uh, me and all my friends were concerned that we put in all this hard work and training uh, to compete and a male can just come in and take over and dominate our sport and it's not fair. So um, yes, and, and the support for this has been overwhelming. Uh, so I, I think people uh, of fairness, people who have common sense, uh, fair-minded people uh, understand why we're doing this. And again, it's not anti-transgender because they have other athletes, other outlets to compete athletically and we encourage that uh we are a very accepting county we have every race religion ethnic group and we welcome every lifestyle mr buckman how do you respond to critics who have uh, that some calling it a, a political stunt others saying it is a way for you to raise your uh, profile within the uh, larger uh, national republican party well you know it's very interesting because, again, today I got an email from a woman uh, who identified herself as a lesbian. Um, excuse me, we didn't get an email. We got a telephone call. She identified herself as a lesbian, said that she was a lifelong Democrat and that she supported me 100 percent, that she's a former athlete and that uh, she thinks that this will destroy women's sports. And by the way, uh, where's the criticism for the WNBA? that has the same policy? Where's the criticism for the LPGA that has the same policy? Where is the criticism for the women's tennis tour that plays in the US Open here in New York City? Uh, are, are the people who are opposing this going to ban them from having their sports events here in New York? I certainly hope not. Those are great sporting events and it's separated by male and female as it should be. 
So, and you mentioned the fact that uh, this is the time of the year where uh, teams start signing up to use county facilities as we head into the summer months. What's the plan for enforcing this? How is it going to be enforced? Well, it's going to be enforced because it's a valid and binding agreement. And if there is a violation of the agreement, the, the occupancy and use agreement or license, as the case may be, will be terminated. And, and have you heard from some of the, the, the teams, leagues, um, that would, because they need to sign an order telling, letting you know they understand what the policy is and that they agree to adhere to that policy, correct? Well, we're hearing from a lot of leagues and teams uh, of all girl and all uh, women uh, athletes that they're very happy about this and they're quite frankly congratulating me for doing it because they understand that uh, this would destroy women's and girls sports as we know it. And uh, again, there's nothing anti-transgender about this. Uh, certainly there are other avenues to compete, all male or co-ed. Bruce Blakeman, thank you so much for sitting down with us this afternoon. I know this is this is going to be a conversation piece going forward here in this election year. In fact, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is that we know there's going to be um, the seat that the race that was just run, Tom Swazi and Mozzie Pillip. Um, some have suggested perhaps you might be a good candidate uh, for that particular office. Any interest? Well, I have a much more important job being county executive. I represent 1.4 million people. I'm the chief executive officer, and I love my job. Uh, it's a great honor to serve in the United States Congress, but I'll leave that to somebody else. That was, that was a very diplomatic answer, wasn't it? You're a professional. <laughs> Thank you so much for sitting down with us. We will, moving forward, we will be speaking with you a little bit more about the policy. and how it's going to be implemented and how folks respond once these teams are out on the field this this summer. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Now to the U.S. Senate race in New Jersey. Andy Kim currently represents the 3rd Congressional District of New Jersey. As he runs for the U.S. Senate seat, one of the battles he's facing is who gets the top spot on the primary ballot. In New Jersey, party leaders in each county decide. And many key party leaders are supporting one of his challengers, Tammy Murphy. She was on Up Close recently. This morning, Mr. Kim is joining us here in the studio. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. Thank you for having me. That I have to be honest with you, I wasn't familiar with the whole idea of the county line I in know. New Jersey. Talk to me a little bit about exactly what that is and why it's so important when it comes to, to getting your name on that ballot. Yeah, well, first of all, I'll say that it's, it's a broken system. You know, we, New Jersey should be doing what 49 other states are doing, which is, you know, you have the office that people are running for, list the candidates underneath. But in New Jersey, they have a system that allows party leaders to be able to put their thumb on the scale and say, you know, we're going to give prominent ballot position to our endorsed candidate. And, uh, you know, I just think that, you know, the ballot, you know, I just think the voting booth is a sacred place in this country, in this mm -hmm. democracy. And you shouldn't have people being able to, you know, tell you how to vote. You know, and what I'll tell you is that people in New Jersey, they're kind of tired of this. You know, they don't like to be told who to vote for. 
So, but unfortunately, it's 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 where things are at. I'm, I'm continuing to try to change it, and I'm calling for New Jersey to change it to office block ballots, like every other state. And essentially, what it means is their candidate that that candidate's name goes is prominently prominently displayed, displayed. Mm -hmm. and, and that just gives a, an advantage to somebody in a way that, like again, a ballot should be a sacred document. It's a government document. You know, you sh I believe that fairness should be at the highest levels when it comes to our democracy. And unfortunately, we don't have that which is what I find frustrating. And I, I find it frustrating that the First Lady is weaponizing this system. She's leaning into it and, and really trying to use it to her advantage. Now, in Monmouth County, though, you surprised a lot of people. You, you became the Democratic nominee from that county. That is Tammy Murphy's home county. Yeah. Um, so that has to feel like I, I really got the momentum. And recent polls show you with the sizable lead. Yeah, well, look, Monmouth County, unlike other counties, uh, doesn't have just you know, one or two party leaders decide who gets that ballot position. So they widen it out to Democratic Party members. And you're right, this is in the First Lady's home county where she's lived for, I think, 25 plus years. Uh, but the fact that they uh, selected me by a sizable margin, I think I won by about 18, 19 points, uh, it gave me a lot of energy, a lot of sense that I'm not alone in feeling the frustration. But the other thing is that they were excited about my experience. I'm a three-term member of Congress. The First Lady, she's never run for office before. Uh, whereas, you know, I'm a three-term member of Congress. I was uh, in diplomacy and national security before that. I've served this country every minute of my career, happily and with integrity. And I hope to continue on in the U.S. Senate. So let's talk about the, what, you, what you see as the top three issues for New Jersey voters in this coming election. Yeah. Well, at the very top of the list that I constantly to hear about because this primary came out from the fact that our senator was indicted, mm -hmm. indicted for gold bars, for alleged corruption, uh, allegedly acting as a foreign agent. So there are a lot of people in New Jersey, they're just saying like, we need to move in a different direction. You know, so our next Senate, we do not want to be having someone in the United States Senate that we have to have concerns about in terms of, of their integrity. And so, you know, for me, I think that sense of restoring integrity is critical, mm -hmm. uh, restoring the sense of trust uh, that has been broken. So that is very much on people's minds. And as someone who's been a career public servant, they know me, they know that you know, they don't have to worry about me when it comes to these types of uh, issues. Uh, another thing is, look, affordability is the top issue that I hear about. High costs, you know, I think uh, the, the phrase that I hear so much is you know, people talking about it, like they feel like they're just like having trouble breathing, mm -hmm. you know, that this anxiety of the costs. And, and they say it's like it feels like death from a thousand cuts. You know, uh, rental prices are up. Housing prices are up. Food prices are up. You know, now New Jersey Transit's I increasing their fares. And that's going to hurt, you know, some of the most uh, vulnerable people in our state, which I, I just disagree with that, that decision. So, you know, there are some real problems that people are facing uh, that I'm trying to help address. You know, I, I worked hard to lower prescription drug costs uh, and, and take other steps to be able to help people through these difficult times. Uh, what you touted is part of your strength. You've been with the State Department. Yeah. You were National uh, Security Advisor with President uh, Obama. So we are essentially in the middle of two wars. We've yeah. got the war going on in Ukraine, the war going in Israel. Talk to me a little bit about what you see are the issues with what's going on in Congress right now when it comes to Ukraine. Um, if, if we're going to talk about doing something about the dysfunction in mm -hmm. government, um, as well as the fact that you know, the war in Israel, there's a, a big fight o over that. How far, 
has, is Israel going? How far should we be supporting them? Talk to me a little bit about what your position would be on both of those. Yeah, so I mean, look, the overarching issue right now that we're facing in Congress is, is this fundamental question of, of what does American global leadership mean right now? And I have some colleagues that are saying that, you know, we need to push in a direction where America is withdrawing from the world. And I think that that's scary. You know, you see how Trump pushes forward on this, you know, America first approach. But what that ultimately means in foreign policy is America only. It means that we're going to go alone, that we're going to withdraw from NATO. We're going to withdraw from our allies and our partners. And I think that that is absolutely ridiculous. I think it's a terrible decision. I say that as someone who was a civilian that worked on a NATO military base in Afghanistan, the only time NATO came to the defense of collective defense was for our defense after September 11th. Mm -hmm. We are stronger with our partners, with our allies, which is why we should be supporting Ukraine, which is why we should be supporting Europe as they face a ground war right now, which still sounds crazy coming out of my mouth that we're yeah. in a place right now where there's a, a literal ground war with trench warfare happening uh, because of this uh, brutal dictator, Putin, which we seen what he did the other day with Navalny. Uh, you know, so we know what he's trying to do. And we know if he gets away with it, you know, he's going to continue to try to re redraw the, the lines uh, 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 of the maps of the world. Yeah, so, and Israel. Yeah. I'm sorry and, to interrupt you, but sizable Muslim population in New Jersey. Um, so there's a, a lot of tension yeah. uh, in this region about what's happening there in Gaza. And, and look, uh, I think that that's something that, you know, we see in Congress as well and elsewhere in terms of what goes forward. I mean, I, I've sat down with uh, with Palestinian American families in New Jersey. I've sat down with, you know, Jewish American families. I've sat down with families of, of some of the hostages that have been taken. And uh, look, I, I think what we're seeing here is just this understanding that we need to make sure that there is investment, heavy investment in diplomacy. I'm a diplomat by trade, so that's mm -hmm. often where my mind goes, but there is no military-only solution to this problem. Yeah. This violence is getting worse and worse, and it's actually making everyone less safe. So I sat down with the Secretary of State two weeks ago. We're trying to push forward on a big diplomatic effort that can get uh, the hostages released, that can get the violence to come to a close, to be able to search humanitarian assistance, and, and try to protect as many civilians as possible. All right. Congressman Andy Kim. Good luck. Thank you. You know we'll be watching. <laughs> you got to fight the next few months. Thank I you very much for sitting down with us today. Thanks for having me. Okay. Just ahead, Bill Ritter's one-on-one -on -one candid interview with the Reverend Al Sharpton. We'll be right back. February is Black History Month, and as part of our coverage, Bill Ritter recently sat down with the Reverend Al Sharpton for a lengthy conversation. Now, Sharpton started preaching when he was just four. That's right, four years old. By the time he was a teenager, he was hip deep in the quest and the struggle for civil rights, and at times, as many of you know, controversial. Here is Bill's interview with Reverend Sharpton. I want to get the first broad picture before we get into the weeds a little bit. Can you say what the state of play is when it comes to civil rights, especially as we talk about Black History Month? I think that we are in a very precarious state. Uh, and I think things have happened of late so quickly that we don't even realize the like peril what? that we're in. We have, in the last year, lost affirmative action by the Supreme Court. They've chipped away Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. They've taken, taken away women's right to choose, all within the last year to 18 months. 
And I think people don't realize the impact of that because out of losing affirmative action, you now have a proactive movement in DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So if you take away a lot of the meat of the Voting Rights Act, you take away affirmative action and DEI, which is the economic uh, parts Dr. King and others in the 60s fought for, you have in effect neutralized a lot of the gains of the civil rights movement 50 years ago. And I think that we have not really looked at it through the, that kind of, of, of lens and say, wait a minute, my grandson, I only have one grandchild, he will grow up in a world with less rights than I grew up in. And I thought I had no rights. Is part of it though, Reverend, that people are tired of fighting back, that they have given up hope a little bit? Because otherwise, why aren't people doing something about it? I think that some are tired, uh, some are active, but, but in different ways. And I think some of the younger crowd came in a generation where they didn't have to fight. So if you got into school at, because of affirmative action, or you got a business contract because of DEI, you don't have a sense that you lost anything because you always had it. We had to fight to get it, so we knew what it was like not to get it. They didn't. So they're living in a world where they're now figuring out, well, why are you raising hell about this revenue? I'll give you an example. I had no problem mobilizing tens of thousands around George Floyd because they understood the reality. And they saw it. And they saw it. They don't see this. These are institutional changes that they don't see as immediate. So that's why you don't see the same kind of crowds, even when we call them, because they take for granted what was now uh, becoming removed from them. And yet when we celebrate, quote unquote, Black History Month, I don't think that's what we focus on. Right. I think this is what we're focusing on. That's what you're focusing on. I don't think we, we focus on, look how great things are. And yes, a long way to go, but look how far it's come. And we're not focusing on what the ramifications of all this are. We're not focusing on what the ramifications were and how they were won, how they got there. Uh, uh, we talk about inventors, and we should. We talk about great artists, and we should. We talk about Martin Luther King and others, but we don't talk about how Martin Luther King uh, house was bombed four times, and uh, that he was stabbed, and that he was indicted for income tax. He went through all of that to become this Nobel laureate. I think that we've given a rosy picture of what brought us to where we got to. So if you go from Martin Luther King to Barack Obama and don't go through the struggles in between, you would think that was just an election. Of course, we had a black president and uh, he was reelected and we have a black female vice president now and not understanding the pain that went through for that gain and it's going to take continued pain to maintain that. I was an anti-war activist back in the college days in, in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, and I remember when I look back now, I'd say, you know, we should have done things differently. We, we made mistakes. Um, but the goal was great, to right. stop the war and have peace. What do you think when you look back on your life? I look back and say that we should have done all of the demonstrations we did, but we should have done it in the spirit of, of reconciliation and explanation so people understand what we were outraged about. And see, people would understand 
that these laws would protect everybody. I don't think that we were careful enough to say we're doing this to better everybody, not that because we're angry at you. And sometimes I think our emotions got in the way of our message. People change. We get older. Right. And you do look at your life differently. Right. right? What would you tell a young Al Sharpton? I tell a young Al Sharpton that be very, very clear on what is the goal and then deal with how is the best way to get to that goal. And sometimes you might have to use a different style and a different way of speaking to get to the goal. Or are you more caught up in the drama or are you caught up in the end goal? At the end of the day, there's a lot of people I know that's been in civil rights as long as I have that nobody remembers. We only remember the people that really made change. And sometimes they were not as vociferous as we were. An interesting conversation, and you can watch the longer version of Bill's conversation with Reverend Sharpton on our website and on our streaming platforms. We'll be right back. That will do it for this edition of Up Close. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can watch the show on our new podcast or on any of our ABC7 NY platforms. Thank you all for watching. I'm Sandra Bookman, in for Bill Ritter. For all of us here at Channel 7 Eyewitness News, Enjoy the rest of your weekend.